Bonjour. Uh, before we take up the questions, let's just have a little background and the context. So, as we all know, Mahabharata is a, uh, normally portrayed as an internecine war. And these wars have taken place from time to time. While we wish and pray that a world should be free from wars, but this these wars father the universe because behind the outer war, war is a most extreme outer manifestation, like quarrels between human beings when they fight, engage in fight, whether verbal or otherwise. What is behind it is a state of inner conflict which is going on for a long time. So the Mahabharata war, the gory war that takes place is the result or the manifestation of a deep conflict which is going on for some time and this conflict according to Indian thought at its bottom, of course there are many kinds of idea forces that come and clash but at its bottom it's a conflict of dharma and adharma. I think somebody has mentioned about that but Normally, when we speak of dharma and dharma, we understand it as a set of moral rules, virtues, uh, good and bad. But that's not how dharma operates. Dharma comes from the root dhra, that which holds. And it not only holds, it carries the march of mankind towards a great future event. So, See, the Mahabharata, at least the, the Gita, starts with Dharma Shetra Kuru Shetra. The field of action is the field of evolving Dharma. So, Dharma is not like a fixed set of qualities where we draw a line and say this is black and this is white. Dharma is the evolutionary journey of man from its origin, from where we come and to where we should go and all else in between happens through a clash of idea forces which are released in the universe. So this is how we have to look at it as the base. In the Mahabharata, just as we have in the Ramayana, the key, the one who holds the dharma of those times. So dharma has two aspects. One is the fundamental truth of existence. For example, I may be a bad person outwardly, but at my root, I believe that this world has been created for the manifestation of the divine. Now, I may not be able to live that reality, but I believe that there should be in this world parity, equity, there should be equality, there should be freedom of speech, etc., etc. And behind it all, I see this world as an expression of the divine. And on the other hand, there is a person who is a virtuous person outwardly who files his income taxes, is good with his neighbors. But deep inside, he has the conviction that this world is meant for the satisfaction of desires. So these, the, the dharma is not just an outer set of action, but deep within the faith and will to be. This is an extreme example I am saying. Not that this would happen in real life. In real life, those who do believe in something deeper, more profound, do have a different approach than those who believe that this world is only for the satisfaction of desires. So when we look at the lineage of these two, they, they come from a common lineage, common trunk of kings, very again, very mighty kings. And this lineage, as I said in the previous thing also, that it was important in those days because this was the way they tried to preserve a way of life. Now it is broken and it has outlived its purpose. That's one part of it. But the way they preserved the 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 life in all its beauty and splendor was to create lineages so in those days we had this lineage which comes from a great and mighty kings king bharat shantanu and you know uh, subsequently bhishma we know all that 
But now what happens to this lineage is at a given point of time, this lineage gets broken. Why? Because to satisfy his father, Bhishma takes a vow. He takes a vow that I will never marry. Now this is the point where we see that the whole lineage starts getting broken and it breaks for a purpose. Because unless a lineage is broken, you cannot have new things which come into uh, evolution. We see the same thing. Rama upholding a whole lineage and subsequent to Rama, the lineage goes away because he has established something. So it's the same thing happens here that Bhishma breaks the lineage unwittingly and thereafter the children who are born, Vichitravir and you know uh, his brother Chitranga, then they are all very weak kings. They are no more carrying that fire which comes right down from Bharat. And when these kings, you know, he sees that the whole lineage has got broken, he brings in sage Vyas, rather their mothers bring in sage Vyas. And once again you have, it's like rejuvenating a dying <coughs> lineage and they have the uh, kings Dhritarasht and Pandu and Vidur who are born out of the uh, two queens and one um, Dasi through Rishi Vyas. So this very beginnings of the story will tell us that it's not a simple story of good and bad. In today's times, if we really look at that a sage is being called to have children of, you know, uh, two queens who cannot have children through their normal processes would almost sound like a gory act. But the if we look at the whole process, right from beginning, from Shantanu and Bharat, in fact, the story starts with King Bharat, who is himself, you know, born uh, in a way which um, to, even today we can't be so liberal, that he is born out of wedlock. So when we look at the whole story, the main key thing here is that how to make this dharma be preserved so that the land can be ruled by the just kings, by time-honored kings through great values. So we have the birth of Dhritarashtra and Pandu and Vidur. Vidur, of course, is Dasiputra. So again, the lineage issue comes in. He doesn't actually become the king, though he is the wisest. Now, all this has to be broken, but the stage, that the setting. And the conflict is between who should be the king, Dhritarashtra or Pandu. Now, Pandu, Dhritarashtra is, again, he is blind, and the whole thing is that the king should be one who is in every way uh, at least capable of safeguarding the kingdom. So Pandu becomes the king and Dhritarashtra is very unhappy at that point of time. So Pandu goes away to the forest. He goes, he, he asks his brother to rule. So his brother Dhritarashtra becomes the trusty, a guardian. He is not coronated the king because they are waiting for Pandu to come back and Pandu dies and then Kunti comes back with the five uh, children and they start growing up and conflict start. Now that's where we see that there are two lines which have started parting and one is the lineage which comes through Dhritarashtra and this lineage is carrying within itself the seed of tremendous ambition. Because that was the whole thing behind Dhritarashtra. He wanted to be the king. He took this is a wonderful opportunity. And this ambition is transmitted into children who believe that it doesn't matter how, which way. But this kingdom is ours, which is also okay. But we don't allow anything from this kingdom to go to anybody else. And they start treating uh, their own brothers as if they are outcasts and outlaws. On the other hand, we have the Pandavas who are born in a forest, who come back, who have to face 
ignomy because when they come, people refuse. They say, we don't know who is your father. So just as with Karna, now you see the contrast, the two lives. Somebody has mentioned about Karna. Karna is also born in a born and abandoned in not at all a good way. This is not something which can be ever justified under whatever pretext we may, um, you know, try to justify it. But Karna is picked up by a set of parents who always treat him as their own child. He actually never knows that who is his parent. He regards, um, you know, he is very happy to be called as Radhe because he is child of his parents and they are also well placed. His father is uh, the charioteer of King Bhishma. So he grows up very well, doesn't know that, you know, who are my parents, except that his nature, his nature is because he's a Kshatriya, he's born from the sun god. So he's all the time uh, having the urge to be the best and the highest. On the other hand, Pandavas, who are apparently legitimate children, are treated all the time with an eye of suspicion. Right through this, this narrative runs that they we don't know whose who's, uh, child Kunti has brought uh, and handed over to us. So look at the contrast in the story. There is a boy abandoned but brought up in a way that he has legitimate parents and there are children who are have legitimate parents and yet Nobody believes that they have a legitimate parentage. Nevertheless, they grow up and then a lot of uh, action and drama takes place where Duryodhana is always wary of. I am not going into the very subtle details of the story because they will be very long like Shakuni and Gandhari and all these characters. But just to bring it to that point of conflict. So we have these two growing up. On one side, the five Pandava brothers, they are ever eager to be friendly. Of course, they also are Kshatriyas. They want their legitimate right in the kingdom. But right from childhood, from the time that Bhima is poisoned to Lakshagraha, to many other incidents, Duryodhana under, well, uh, because of the counsel of Shakuni, he constantly feels, perceives a threat from the Pandavas. Now, where Pandavas a threat? Well, in the, the only threat there was between Duryodhana and the Pandavas was, that basically Pandavas were born of the actual coronated king. Number one. Second, Yudhishthir was actually the eldest and not Duryodhana. Duryodhana and Bhima are together. So there was definitely a legitimate threat that tomorrow when the time comes, Yudhishthir will become the king. And Duryodhana is driven by ambition that I want to be the king any which way. So he tries to kill them. And yet the drama unfolds, the Pandavas being what they are, Yudhishthir especially, he doesn't want a kind of such a conflict between them. Even when there is an attempt, two clear attempts on their lives, he doesn't take take to the war. He doesn't challenge them. He doesn't tell them that, look, you know, uh, make me the king and I deserve it, etc., etc. Then another event takes place, which is the marriage of Draupadi, which is again a very fascinating event. And then again, Draupadi is humiliated when they come back and they are told that, look, you know, you have one woman between the five of you and you cannot be the king because you are following a dharma. So that's a time when Bhishma takes a stand and the stand is ultimately they all decide, let us split the kingdom into two. So they split the kingdom. Pandavas get the worst deal. They are sent to Khandaprasth, which is a place infested with snakes and, um, you know, nothing really grows there. It's a, it's a burned down place. Um, and that's the place where they are given. And they build out of Khandaprasth, Indraprasth. Whereas the main, um, main city, main kingdom, Hastinapur is given to Duryodhana. So thus far also it is okay. I mean, Pandavas say it's fine. 
we are happy with what we have got and we'll build a beautiful kingdom out of this now this shows the character of the pandavas that on one side duryodhana wants the best piece of the cake whereas these people have this attitude that even if we are given the worst we are confident that we can build something very beautiful out of it so they are given uh, khandaprasth and change it into indraprasth but again that creates another round of jealousy in duryodhana's heart because he is always worried that one day probably yudhishthir will challenge them he is always shown as an insecure person all the time he is threatening to commit suicide if you really read the story it's very interesting that that man is veer he is capable he is he is strong but he is always living under the pressure that what if my kingdom is taken away what if my kingdom is taken away so he uses threats coercion blackmailing his father and all that so now what he does is because again there is a threat he invites them to a unfair play of dice unfair because it is the invitation is by duryodhana and at the last moment he tells that my game will be played by shakuni and yudhishthir being who he is he agrees and at the same time um uh, when yudhishthir agrees to this and the dice game goes on we know that shakuni wins the game now people often that's where one of the questions was that yudhishthir did something which is very wrong how can he be a paragon of dharma certainly not yudhishthir has his own vices all the pandavas have their vices but again dharma is not about isolated incident in fact yudhishthir's incidents shows that even a man full of virtue can make mistakes it's not about making mistakes and errors even great people can make great errors so yudhishthir made a great error when he put his um, own wife on uh, you know on the dice game of dice because really human beings are not properties how could he do it now that's one part that yudhishthir made a mistake and yet the brothers and his wife stand by him that's one another part but what happened to all the people sitting in the place they are equally responsible supposing i am playing a game uh, against a group of people and the person has unfairly done something which should not be done then all of us as part of the dharma will say no 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 you are not supposed to do this on the contrary shakuni keeps on telling him that why don't you put your brothers why don't you put your wife and all the people bhishma drona um, you know kripacharya and uh, dhritarashtra everybody is silent over this it was a outright adharma done by everybody including the five pandava brothers so it's not just only yudhishthir who is guilty and convicted of this act but everybody but what comes worse out of that is not only up till this point that they have become slaves and you know they have to go to the forest banished that comes in another game but what come becomes much worse is when draupadi is dragged now this is nowhere there in the game it's not the game that you know draupadi will be called and disrobed and yet draupadi is called and disrobed and again everybody remains quiet so the rest we know is uh, you know unfolds uh, with krishna coming and draupadi is uh, you know disrobing uh, being halted by a miraculous event but at that point of time you know as they say that the balance of justice is not about one person is all good and the other is all bad certainly not duryodhana had his good side and uh pandavas had their you know uh, like any other human being they had their own defects but the balance of justice tilts completely in favor of the pandavas at the moment drop these dragged and being disrobed there was no way that this should have been done and she is the empress i mean at least the um, of another king she is the queen 
and if this could happen to a queen what would be the state of an ordinary woman and this is how duryodhana justifies even karna justifies at that point of time they say she is a slave she is married to five men she is like a prostitute what is there if we can even to a prostitute you can't treat like that you can't treat a slave like that that you know she is my property now yudhishthir did something bad but what duryodhana did was not bad he did something evil and wicked to do to take this so you know this event where the whole balance of justice tilted in favor of the pandavas yet look at the difference subsequently to the game of dice i am speaking of there is another game which takes place but pandavas agree to go to the forest the kingdom has been usurped everything and yet they could have fought at that point of time but they don't fight this is their you know kind of dignity where they ultimately walk into the forest knowing that well we have lost the game this was an unfair game and all the armies of drupad the armies of many other people would have been with them just like the mahabharata war subsequently and yet they choose to go to the forest now i am not speaking right now of the deeper meanings but just the war itself so pandavas throughout we see they are representing a way of life where one upholds truth integrity justice as the ultimate qualities dharma that this life you can't have different standards for kings and commoners this is what they represent they make mistakes all make mistakes so they are not flawless people and if if at all there can be anything like a flawless human being somebody has rightly said uh, you know we'll come to that question later but basically they have their own defects but their center is in the right place so what matters in a human being is where your center is it's not about our outer nature which will show ups and downs but where is the center so where is the center of the pandavas that is revealed subsequently where we have the center of the whole epic the hero of the mahabharata and that is shri krishna so shri krishna is the upholder of the dharma in that age just as lord rama is the upholder in that age when you know in the age of treta when you have on one side the asuras the vanaras and all these uh, lawless kind of people who who just believe that might is right but now humanity has come further it they are human beings and human beings do the same thing like animals and asuras but they use their mind to justify deceit and cunning has come into play now they play the game the game the rules of the game has changed in the time of uh, ramayana also there is deceit but still there is might which is important in this age when shri krishna is there it's all about deceit and cunning we if we look at it that way so in that case what does shri krishna do shri krishna perfects the game and knows that what should happen and he uses the very weapons extreme intellectual rigor and understanding of life without flaunting dharma mind you that that's very important because people mistake that you know shri krishna was using unfair means he uses fair means but he uses the cleverness of a human being which and that war is important why because on one side imagine that shri krishna said okay i am not going to do anything which is even remotely unfair what would have happened shri krishna would have been catapulted by everybody as the greatest saint and sage in the history but india would have lost because india would have been governed by the likes of duryodhana who could disrobe a woman that to their own bhabhi who is a queen and for them queen or slave or any woman was simply an object of pleasure and to be mocked at wanton ambition 
all that axis was there during that time jarashand sishupal and the hastinapur korwas this whole um, nation arivart was in a state of utter decline where power was ruling so when we look at jarashand lives uh, 100 uh, prince he wants to sacrifice just to gain immortality when we look at the nexus of sishupal and kansa where you know kansa's taxations are so high everything will be like a you know whatever he dictates and decides children can be killed anybody can be put to jail so now comes shri krishna and during that time he looks at this world or this little kingdom arivart which is the upholder of dharma and he sees all around nothing but a play of wanton ambition pride jealousy greed last what does he do he is the upholder of the yug dharma so he starts one by one we see sishupal and kansa they are eliminated and then jarasand is eliminated so now this is it's free of these two great demon kings and then we have the korvas now korva is not so easy because it's a very mighty kingdom the mightiest kingdom apart from yaduvansh but when the choice comes that's where the pandavas heart being in the right place on one side shri krishna right till the end gives them a choice so he gives a crucial choice on one side there is krishna unarmed who will not lift a uh, an arm but only give his counsel or maybe drive a chariot unarmed on the other side there is his chaturangini narayani sena and that that uh, even we shrivindra is immortalized in one of his aphorisms that even if you have the whole world on one side with all its you know shrapnels and all its arms and on the other side unarmed uh, shri krishna on one side choose shri krishna now shri krishna is the divine what it means is that pandavas knew that at any expense they will not let go of the divine uh, within their hearts and in this world they'll make mistakes who doesn't make mistakes but at the same time their heart is in the right place divine and his word that's how the pandavas proceed on the other hand there is Uh, Duryodhana, for him, what matters is simply winning a war and satisfying his ambition. So this is how the war proceeds, and the rest is history. Now, with this, we can try to understand some of the crucial questions. There are quite a few in Mahabharata because Mahabharata is not a simple good and bad conflict. It's a conflict of dharma. So we start with this question about Eklavya. Eklavya is one of the incidents which is narrated. in the whole story as if you know uh, it was pandava's mistake that what happened to eklavya to start with let us know that it is dronacharya who asked eklavya for the thumb why did dronacharya ask him certainly it's it's not a deed which can ever be justified uh, by modern standards but in those days dronacharya was the one uh, he belonged to he believed that this kind of a knowledge should only be given to the kings and their children who come from a common lineage the idea was to preserve the race and if eklavya could now this is an outdated idea in modern times perfectly but during that age it was only kings children who could become kings now if you had archers like uh, you know karna and eklavya of that stature the whole balance would be shifted this is how he believed it's not a thing which is right or good or justified but the only way he could ensure he knew eklavya's prowess the only way he could ensure was to ask his thumb and it's the most unfair deal that destiny struck on eklavya but look at the fallout now the interesting part is dronacharya who asked for this arjuna is no way you know connected with the story 
neither are the Pandavas. The Pandavas and Kauravas both were under the tutorship of Dronacharya. So all of them were there by the side of Dronacharya. They also didn't understand what's happened and why their guru has done it. But look at the fallout of the story, the far-reaching implication. Eklavya actually joins the Duryodhana army. Of course, not as a warrior anymore, but as the postal, the person who carries posts. So it's a very strange thing that Eklavya, despite being, uh, you know, humiliated by Dronacharya, still goes and joins his side. Ordinarily, a person would have reacted and revolted and would have said, I'm never going to be on the side where this man is. But that's where Eklavya is shown that he had a Guru Bhakti of an unparalleled stature. So he joins Duryodhana. Imagine Eklavya with all his prowess being on that side, what the war would have meant. So this is one incidence where we have to see the background and certainly it's not the Pandavas but Dronacharya. Dronacharya's allegiance was very clear. A great warrior but his allegiance was with the king and the kingdom. Not primarily with Dharma. So this is where Dronacharya makes a mistake. He's a great man but his allegiance is with the king. He can't afford to create another Arjuna or another Bhima. It has to be in the lineage, Duryodhana and all others. He cannot afford to have that. What answer will he give to Dhritra? So like any other ambitious man, a capable man but an ambitious man, he chooses the side of Dhritrashtra. See how people are making choices. Then there is this another character, Karn. And there is so much sympathy about Karn. He is often shown as a martyr. Okay, fine. Destiny was unfair to him. Yet he proved himself by going to the Guru of Dronacharya. Dronacharya refused him again for the same reasons but he goes and develops all the prowess which Parshuram can give. He is, if you really see, he has gone one step ahead of Arjuna at that point of time. Not that he was the greatest warrior because Arjuna later on at the behest of Krishna does tapasya and he receives certain weapons. One of them include Pashupatastra from Shiva and that weapon was so devastating that it could destroy the entire Korva army in a moment. There was nobody equal to that and yet he never uses. That's you know his greatness. But that apart, he has become now a great um, Kshatriya and he can prove himself in an equal fight. So that's good. Nothing wrong with it. Kshatriyas challenge each other and they took to fights as he challenges them in the him in the Rangmanch. But the problem with Karna is that he too gives in to ambition. How does he give in to ambition? He is a Kshatriya. He is a man of valor. He could have chosen to be always on the side of Dharma. This is the duty of the Kshatriya. It doesn't matter whether... Uh, his arch rival is Arjuna, whether he proves a point or not. But he should learn to stand by what is truth and right and justice. Before the war, a last proposal has been made by the uh, by Shri Krishna himself that give them just five villages and they'll be satisfied. And for a moment, Karna advises Duryodhana to accept it. And he doesn't. That was the moment Karna could have said, well, but I can't support you, bro, in this kind of a battle where you are clearly on the side of what is unjust and unfair. But he doesn't. Why? Because he feels obliged because Duryodhana has given him a portion of a kingdom called Ang. Now, I often compare the story of Duryodhana giving the kingdom of Angaraj, I mean the Ang Desh to Karna as the original, I am sorry to say this, but the original Mafia story. You know, how does mafia begin? If you read Godfather, the novel. So what did they do? 
the dons they wanted to control uh, you know a whole group of people so they would hire people who were muscle men who were powerful that's how politicians still rule and what would they do they would first give favors they would not ask anything they would suddenly catch a man who is capable and say what do you need you need for your daughter's marriage okay fine take 50000 rupees 1 lakh 5 lakhs and the man feels obliged but after that he will do anything for that man enslaved even kill his own conscience kill people because he feels uh, you know enslaved and feels uh, under the you know under gratitude or a kind of obligation but shri krishna comes to teach he comes and tells karna that you are basically a man who is capable of even becoming a king and if you come on the side of the pandavas they will make you uh, they'll be very happy to make you the eldest one the king because he knows that he is capable so the offer is not unfair the offer is if karna switches a side because he knows that dharma is on this side he would be made the king but karna refuses now some would say he refuses because at that point of time he feels grateful but again even if we take it that karna refused because he felt grateful towards his friend and for him friendship was everything then again we see that karna makes a choice between dharma and friendship nothing can be greater than dharma dronacharya made a choice between dharma and his ambition to be the uh, you know in the hastinapur kingdom to be the great teacher and karna makes a choice of being you know regarded in the world as you know being grateful and standing by his friend and he chooses a dharma what about bhishma bhishma does the same thing if you look at it getting these three daughters um, uh, or sisters ambambika and ambalika he should have married them because that was the law of the land or those times but he refuses he said gets them married to his you know nephews or co-brothers and they are incapable even of having a child so he really compels them to get married one of them of course leaves and goes away and does the tapasya and comes back as shikhandi we know all that but again bhishma has made a made a promise that i'll stand by the throne regardless of anything again there is a choice that is the throne more important or dharma bhishma also knew that dharma is on the side of the pandavas because they have been mistreated right from birth and even toward the end they wanted to avoid the war completely and yet bhishma chooses his promise his word nothing is more and the, you know this lesson is shown to bhishma so beautifully in the mahabharata itself krishna has also made a promise that i will not uh, lift an arm but there comes a time when arjuna is under threat of bhishma and that's the time krishna stands between arjuna and bhishma and bhishma says that you know you have promised that you will not lift a weapon he says i am not lifting a weapon i am simply lifting the wheel the wheel of the chariot and i'll fight with you because it's my dharma to protect one who has completely come uh, taken refuge in me does duryodhana do that to karna he doesn't do that look at the difference shri krishna breaks his promise stands between arjuna and bhishma that before you get to him get to me because he has taken refuge in me he has made a choice for him shishyaste ham sadivam what does duryodhana do on the other hand he sends karna he wants karna to use the shakti he wants karna to somehow stand for him but when karna is in distress nobody is around it was his duty as a prince to ensure that his most trusted friend is taken care of what about the killing of karna on the battlefield leave aside for a moment all that uh, you know uh, how he forgot the curse of parshuram karna is off the chariot 
he is not off his weapons and while arjuna still wants him to come to the chariot there was every possibility of karna to use a weapon against arjuna and he does invoke the weapon it's not that he dies while pulling the chariot and he's helpless if you read the original mahabharata story he tries to invoke the brahmastra but he is not able to remember and that was the curse which parshuram gives him because parshuram could foresee as a tutor that here is a man who would go to any extent to achieve his ambition nothing wrong in that that he learnt archery etc but here is a man who will go to any extent lie about everything to gain his ambition not tomorrow he may misuse all that i have given him for wrong purposes for evil purposes so he tells him that the day you try to misuse this vidya that day you will forget it so he forgets it now there is a moment where both are face to face it didn't matter whether arjuna was on chariot or he could have come down they were both face to face now karna forgot how to invoke the weapon and arjuna knew it because karna was obviously misusing it at that point of time or as the destiny prevailed at that point of time and that's the time when shri krishna says look you are in a battlefield you don't uh, think in the battlefield about you know everything should be perfect that he should also remember the vidya you are in the middle of a war when you are fa- i'll give you an example you know of real battle how it takes place we try to make it appear as if you know everybody has time to think and calculate in kashmir this happened my friend who is a now of course a colonel but you know he was a major and he was telling me that commando that how they have to face situations where it's very difficult in a real battle ground so he says that you know terrorists often would wear a burqa and come and suddenly they have gone to a shop and they'll fire now what do they do you can't ask women to lift up their burqas obviously it's not correct but what they do is they develop a kind of instinct where suddenly they get a sixth sense feeling that here is not a lady but a terrorist and they shoot and he says most of the time we were right but sometimes we make a mistake you know that's when the human rights all that comes into play now what do they do either they become sitting ducks or they take their chances that's what battle is about so in a battle when there is a gory war going on it's not a time when you know um, shri krishna would counsel arjuna that doesn't matter give him another chance we'll meet tomorrow when he has a good chariot and he can remember his uh, weapon he didn't remember his uh, you know brahmastra and he had to face the Uh, music of course the deeper reason is as i said again he made a choice against dharma and chose for his own individual virtue to be glorified rather than the dharma so we see these three characters same thing happens with the uh, lie of uh, half a lie of yudhishthira look at the uh, beauty of the story not just one event here is all these people dronacharya bhishma um uh, karna all these people are there um duryodhana himself and they kill a 16 year old boy mercilessly without following a single norm of the war and here is yudhishthir who is saying but you know i you know bhima will kill an elephant and you expect me to say elephant's name is ashwatthama how can i say he is caught up in that dilemma look at the contrast yudhishthir is not willing even to tell half a lie for the sake of victory and here are people seven warriors who are ready to just kill a 16 year old just because now it's a question of their prestige they can't face him in an open war one to one so this is the big difference between the pandavas and the kauravas yes he tells half a lie or rather he tells the truth 
Ashwatthama Hato Hata. And the moment he says, Narova Kunjuro, it's not a man but an elephant. There are all the drums and uh, um, conch shells blowing, which of course is Krishna's plan. And that's the time when <clears throat> Dronacharya succumbs. He's sitting on the battlefield, unarmed, helpless, that what's the use of my living if my son is dead? And he is killed. So if you really look at the whole story, there are many other incidents which uh, you know, bring out the beauty and grace of the Pandavas. All through that whole thing. But there is a very subtle hint also in the story. At the end of the entire war, again you look at Ashwatthama. Whom does he, what does he do as a warrior? He kills five or rather six. He thinks they are Pandavas. But he kills them while they are asleep. They are not of course Pandavas, but uh, they are their children. And of course, Drishtadum, whom he mistakes for Krishna. He just kills them and he feels he has done a great job. And Duryodhana, even till the last moment, is very satisfied that ultimately you kill them. Imagine this kind of a thing going to Yudhishthir and the Pandavas. They would hang their head in shame. Even after the war, they just can't rule because they go through a deep pain. That look here, you know, our own brothers, our own family members have been massacred. So it is known that when the war is over, Yudhishthir and others, they go into a period of uh, seclusion. And ultimately it is Yuyutsu who is the 101st child of Dhritarashtra. He is the one who rules the kingdom because they can't. They say, Ki, how can we, we have inherited the kingdom. There has been a war and it is very difficult for them to reconcile with all the events that has happened. Compare it to Duryodhana and the cohort who are perfectly fine, you know, disrobing Draupadi, doing the Lakshagra and con- doing Indraprasth and the Dyut Sabha and everything and continuing to rule. And still they are not willing to even part with the kingdom, with, with even a, you know, uh, worth a needle ground. So just imagine the stark contrast. So while there are individual Mistakes when you see a story in a small little, always I say that uh, when we look at a picture, don't look at only one small little frame. There is a background, there is a larger picture. Then we have to see. Somebody insights, let's take an example, that someone keeps abusing another person constantly, hurting him in many ways. Now this person who is basically strong and has been observing restraint, one day holds his fist And gives a nice blow to this man who has been constantly insulting and abusing. And what happens? This man who was insulting and abusing dies. Now tell me who is wrong and who is right. So in real life, of course, law is a different thing altogether. Though law also recognizes that it was done in that state. He has died. If you see outwardly, this man killed this man. He was so much more powerful, but he used his fists. But if you go to the background, you understand that he was trying to repress all his anger and one day it blurted out. With Pandavas, it was not even anger or insult. All that they forgot. It was ultimately, they were driven to the war because not a piece of land would be there for them to rule. So this is the background of the war and it is Sri Krishna who upholds the Dharma. Why did he want the Pandavas to win? Not just it's a question of morally right or wrong. But because he knew that if Pandavas win, all that kind of kingdoms where on one side you had, you had Rukmi, Jarasandh, uh, people like Duryodhana, Kansa, that kind of Aryavart will be much better governed by the likes of Yudhishthir. Not that he is perfect, but he is much better. At least he is open to truth. He believes in the virtue of truth. He may not always be able to follow it. So, 
That's why he wanted to release the path of evolution, open it for the likes of Yudhishthir. And he succeeded. And thanks to that war, as Shurabindu says in his Bengali writings, thanks to that war, Gori war, Shri Krishna saved Bharata. That's when uh, Aryavarta was saved again and a, a kind of, you know, it was ruled for 2000 years by kings like Parikshet, uh, Ajat Shatru and many other kings. Uh, Vikramaditya, right down to the times of Chandragupta Maurya. Because he had secured Bharatvarsh once again and a lineage of kings who were mighty, who were wise, who were compassionate, they governed the kingdom. If Duryodhana would have continued, it would have meant the destruction of all the highest and deepest values of the civilization. That is the secret of the war and that is the dharma about. Whatever opens the path to evolution, this dharma is not about right and wrong, moral right and wrong. Dharma is about whatever helps the evolution of mankind, an individual, a group life, a race, a civilization, a nation towards truth and light and unity and freedom and love and mutual self-respect, whatever stands for that. And by whatever means, once again, by whatever means, the path should be open in this way. And that's what we see Comparison was made during the Second World War when Sri said, when he was asked that, do you think that the allies are all paragons of virtues? He said, no, because people compared it to the Mahabharata War. They are not. Churchill had his own weaknesses. He didn't like India. He almost, you know, he, he, had, he was a big racist. But they stand for the values which you deeply cherish. The allied powers that time stood for freedom of mankind, for liberty. Whereas... For Hitler, it was he, his people and ultimately he believed in, you know, the superiority of the so-called Aryans which he obviously misused the word. And he believed in that. So he had to be defeated by whatever means. Even his defeat from the divine point of view, it was a kind of divine diplomacy. So would one have allowed Hitler to come while following, you know, the great ideals of Ahinsa Parmo Dharma? This is what Gandhi said. He said, let Hitler come and invade us, doesn't matter. We will open our doors to him, but we will keep our hearts. Still, we will nurture in it the sacred values of non-violence. Now, do we really believe intuitively that that was the right choice for Mahatma Gandhi to say it's perfectly fine? Let him come and occupy our hearts. Do you think it was right even for Subhash Chandra Bose to say that right now our task is to defeat the Britishers? It doesn't matter. Let Hitler come. Let Japan come. But the Britishers should be defeated. Now imagine if Hitler came to India. And yes, uh, Britishers would have been defeated. But imagine at those days, if Japan and Hitler turned India into a stage of war and Hitler actually conquered India. Do you understand what would have happened to the gas chambers and, and all the, you know, we all would have become cooking pots and stews in the hands of Hitler. Leave aside the kind of gory crimes. Did we have the capacity to rise the way Jews have risen back? So in a, in a civilizational clash, it's not about individuals doing something right or wrong. Gandhi would have been exalted. He's still exalted. Look at it, non-violence. But look at the damage that would have happened to millions and billions of people. Just because I stand by an individual quality and want to universalize it. That's what morality does. Morality picks up one quality and tries to universalize it. That's the mistake that Bhishma is making. That's the mistake that Karna is making. Uh, 
That's the mistake which even Yudhishthir is making. Picking up one quality and universalizing it. But life is not that. In life, the only universal truth one should hold is dharma. Pandavas stand for that. And that's what, you know, the beauty of the story is how it, when we once again connect the beginning to the end is, all the Pandavas and of course Karna also, they are not born out of the normal process of birth. And we see even Parikshit, he dies in the womb. Can you imagine somebody killing a baby in the womb? That's exactly what Ashwatthama tries. Firing a Brahmastra salvo at that little baby who is in Uttara's womb because he wants that entire dynasty to be destroyed. And yes, Sri Krishna protects him. In a way, he dies and is reborn. So all of them are basically, they do not come through the normal process of heredity, but they carry upon them the touch of the gods. So basically, Pandavas and Parikshit who eventually rules, they represent the new creation. Because they are not, you know, they break off from heredity, but they bring in something new in its place. Heredity is alright as long as people are following the path of dharma. But it has to be broken aside and new values have to emerge. After Parikshit, we don't see that uh, it is uh, just by heredity. A different whole scenario opens before, you know, uh, the nation called India. At the same time, we also see something very beautiful about the Mahabharata war. That they at the end of it, it's not about which side won. At the end of it, it is the human values which must win. There's a very beautiful aphorism of Shirobindo where he says, Men die so that man may live and God be born. So it is those great values which are cherished by the Pandavas that open the door to civilization progress. One last question, and then we will take the question is somebody has mentioned about gods being. You know, gods are perfect and human beings cannot be perfect as the gods. First of all, gods are not perfect. Human beings are much better than the gods. If you read the story of the gods of the Puranas. <laughs> because God lacks something. Gods, not God with a capital G and singular. Gods, small g and gods, they lack something which human beings have. This is what the great scriptures always tell us. Even gods want to take up a human body. To progress. And what is it that they miss? They lack, what they lack is the soul within, the psychic being, which is the seed of progress. So gods are in their plane. They don't know what is sorrow. They don't know what is suffering. But human beings are chastised. They grow wiser and stronger because they experience suffering, because they experience pain. And at the same time, human beings nurture within them the dream of a perfect world. Is there a proof that human beings can one day become perfect? Certainly not as the gods, but greater than the gods. They can become perfect because they nurture in them the dream of perfection. Incorrigible dream of perfection. Everything in life may be contrary, yet human beings are marked with this dream. And if there is a dream given by nature to somebody, that means it will create the means to arrive at its fulfillment. All human beings... In their awakened thoughts. All I mean, not the entire population of trillions, but all human beings who are worthy of being called human beings, they hold within them the dream of a perfect life, perfect love, perfect bliss, perfect truth where there is no error. And this dream is a sign that one day 
it seems impossible because it all starts with dream imagination and that's why human beings have imagined many of these stories and legends not that mahabharata and ramayana are in imagination but there is a way first you have a dream then you want to manifest it how do you manifest it you manifest it in the form of books novels creative work art various forms education health all these dreams of a life where you don't need drugs etc you can develop health from within so all these dreams of humanity human beings have tried to uh, put them you know tried to made attempt and effort to express it they have never fully succeeded but due to the failures the dream has not died it has continued to be nurtured and nourished and that's where we close with what shrivindra says that the time has come for this dream of perfection to be fulfilled it cannot be done by merely human virtues and vices because every virtue at a human level is an attempt to replicate the dream and ends up making a caricature of it so perfection is not about virtue when we think perfection is about set of virtues then we will end up eliminating the whole of humanity perfection is not equal to being this 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 that is a moral idea of you know conception of perfection perfection is to embody the fullness of the divine consciousness what is that fullness fullness of knowledge it's not about virtue but a knowledge which is intuitively right on the target perfection is about the fullness of power not that we are depending on something outward all the time but we are able to even the human body is able to take the challenge of any kind and yet develop from within itself the power to uh, you know safeguard and grow through it perfection is about the perfection of delight the ananda of creation right now we can experience only joy and sorrow but we want a state where we don't fall back into a state of uh, you know sadness or sulk perfection is about perfection of peace which can stay despite all the situation and circumstances life of life perfection is about collective harmony which should start between two human beings agreed but eventually spread to the whole mankind as an ideal of unity as an ideal of freedom as a ideal of brotherhood so perfection is not about being you know honest being uh, a good guy as we understand perfection is about embodying the divine qualities the divine powers the divine knowledge the divine delight the divine peace which is there within us that's why we seek it mystics seek it some find it but they are not able to bring it into life because our instruments and our consciousness is still limited by nature and here comes shirobindo who says no it is possible that perfection which mystics find within can be manifested in life by the grace and power of the divine mother who is the supernature standing behind nature so this nature is a shadow and by bringing in that greater supernature it can change into its perfect form and perfect expression so this is about the broader picture as i said it's a very complex epic with many many incidents which are amazing um you know they are very inspiring like drop these character i find personally very inspiring here is a woman who refuses to break break down again we see something like sita refuses to break down she stands strong she doesn't sita doesn't say okay okay ravana anyways i want to be happy what to do okay i'll marry you drop the refuses to break down even if i am a slave i still uphold my greatest Uh, truths within 
and she lives by them she wins them even when the whole world condemns her she stands by her choices she makes a choice and stand by that she is the that's why she is among the five uh, you know women who are respected in indian thought and can you imagine how liberal and vast an indian thought is imagine a woman today marrying five husbands let's imagine and here is mahabharata where you have the example of draupadi having five men how does she resolve the dilemma uniquely she says one year i'll be with one man completely nobody comes so there is a fullness with every person it's not even that you know she loving a little bit of him here and a little bit of him there when she loves that one year that one year is all her life with this man there is nobody else who comes that's their arrangement look at how they are trying to resolve the dharma issues because draupadi is married to all five she is not a frivolous character who says okay fine morning i'll take a walk with yudhishthira because he's a good guy he tells me nice satsang bhajans and afternoon i'll go hunting with arjuna and at night i'll sleep with bhima she doesn't do that she says one year with yudhishthira nobody comes one year with bhima so she like living five lives it's like different lifetimes look at how she resolves the dilemma and she fulfills the mission is said she was an avatar of kali and she fulfilled the work for which she had come it was to destroy the upholders of adharma that's why she is yagyaseni born of the fire of tapasya so she is a very amazing inspiring character as to karna it's the story story of a fall even a great being who is born of the fire of the sun energies of the sun succumbs to a human virtue he succumbs to his ambition one of being the king and worse ambition that he wants to defeat arjuna his life's mission is to prove a point arjuna never makes it his life's mission to beat karna in a point never he is what he is he is happy with what he is but we see karna always carrying this warped individuality all his life he is craving for a war with arjuna why because he wants to prove the, to the world that he is the greatest archer that's not what is kshatriya is meant to be for kshatriya saving uh, dharma standing for the uh, you know people who are downcast standing for righteousness and truth is important even if the world doesn't regard him as the best warrior still that's his duty and karna abandons it so on one side there is yash on the other side there is mahatvakanksha on one side there is glory and the other side there is ambition karna chooses ambition and therefore he has to fall from glory this the unfortunate message of karna it is unfortunate tragic life not because he was outcast by society krishna was outcast krishna never grew up if you look at life of krishna he is the most uh, you know person who has right from childhood faced all the horrors chased by the asuras born in a uh, you know prison abandoned by <laughs> you know he he never knows who his parents are if you really look at the life of krishna he is it's the most difficult life and yet he rises to godhead that's the greatness of the pandavas and shri krishna's life that doesn't matter what you may be born whatever challenges you may face birth is not in your hands it was not karna's choice to be born like this fine fair enough life has given you a unfair deal the worst deal what is man's manhood to still stand for what is true and right and beautiful that is called proving a point 
Pandavas also had a raw deal in life, much worse deal than the uh, than Karna, though they are born in the lineage and recognized, but all their life they are chased by all kinds of horrors. Yet they stand for what is true and right and beautiful. This is what makes a man. Karna had all the potential, yet it his life ends in a tragedy because he never used like Ravana, the bhakta becoming one who is after asakti. So same thing we see in the story of Karna that whatever you may be born with, your qualities, your capacities, even if you achieve them, still if within us there is the canker of ambition, it will lead towards self-destruction. So either we have to choose between name and fame and ambition satisfying those things, between kingdom and wealth, or standing up to the truth of our purpose, what is uh, spoken of in the Gita as Swadharma, and Sri Krishna's that sloka, uh, that little bit of portion that explains what went wrong with Karna. He says, Swadharmo nidhanam shreya par dharmo bhyava. So he tells Arjuna that your Swadharma is to fight for the true, for the right, for the beautiful. And at this point of time, truth and right and beautiful is with your brothers. It's not because they are your brothers. It's not because it's your kingdom. That's the mistake Yudhishthira was making and Arjuna was also making. Oh, it doesn't matter, I'll abandon the kingdom. He says, no, the people trust you, they look up to you. You want to give away the kingdom and the people all to Duryodhana who will misuse them. So he says, no, you must fight because it's your Swadharma. And this applies to Karna also and Dronacharya and Bhishma. What was the Swadharma of the Kshatriya? To fight for whatever is noble and good and true. And none of them did that. They chose Pardharma. Pardharma means one sticking to his word, another to the throne, third person to his ambition, and therefore Pardharma Bhayavaha. When we follow an alien dharma, alien law of being, there is nothing else but destruction. Any questions? Um, yeah, yeah, okay. That's a great... Uh, yeah, 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 probably... I, I wish you saw the movie Planet of the Apes. So, well, at different stages of mankind, these powers have been given. Now, if you look at the Treta Yuga, that's the time when people are living largely in a consciousness which is centered in the higher mind. And while the rest of them is in the animal, Rakshasic, Asuric world. And these powers are not really magical. Magical they seem to us. But just as by physical means, by digging into matter, we discover the capacity of the nuclear bomb, you know, fission and fusion, which is locked within an atom. A hundred years, two hundred years back, if somebody said, you know, you can split an atom and blow the world, it would have appeared as magical. But today we have it. So, at all levels of our being, there are powers which are waiting to be discovered. Because in this age, we have dug deep into matter, so we had to receive the powers from matter. And they are, by the way, far more devastating, I think, than the Brahmastra and the Agniastra. But similarly, there are powers which one can obtain by harnessing the forces of the vital world. You know, if you have seen the movie 36 Chambers of Shaolin, and really it is, uh, you know, in Mother Shubindo's life, we know that how by the power of will, he could halt a whole menacing army of Hitler. So now, if you, supposing you know, there is, uh, to, to give a little example, Somebody has harnessed the power of will to an extent that it can have a devastating effect. Yet the will cannot reach at a great distance. It can reach up to a point. So what do you do? You use a medium. 
Now, in you know, like we know, Shirobindo used beings like uh, Churchill to fulfill you know what he wanted. Now, these mediums can even be material mediums, charged with a tremendous energy, a tremendous power. They can have devastating effect. So, they, they, this is one of the ways that powers of the vital, powers of the mind, spiritual powers, all of them could be harnessed by doing a tapasya of that kind. Like, you know, material scientist does material tapasya. So, he discovers material powers. So, imagine people who do spiritual tapasya. Imagine Vasist bringing out a whole army out of his dunder. So what is that army? There are energies which are released, which can be devastating. Now, there used to be these uh, stories where the rishis took water in their hands and uh, they read some incantation and threw it and it had magical powers. Now, Shubindu describes an example. As a child, I have seen these things also, where instead of medicine, because medicines were not there so many, so, you know, when somebody was ill, you have a little water, drinking water and somebody did some mantra it used to be called phuk marna and you know shirobindo speaks about when barin had a mountain fever and cuts it with knife i mean this uh, um, it's not so important about the technique part but the energy with which the water was charged and when that water was drunk he was cured of the fever i have seen such stories not stories but real life incidents with tulsi patti with ganga jal and at diff- this not superstition this simply ways of charging Anything with a certain kind of energy in or will they actually have this dynamized water? Now, I don't know how it is prepared. But there have been experiments that even water can be charged in a way. See, that was the principle behind offering everything to God and partaking it. So, to get power, the way is tapasya. So, if one does tapasya seriously, like, you know, uh, and the tapasya involves even the risk of death, like uh, Madame Curie's husband, he died eventually, but he discovered radium, which is tremendous power. So any power can be obtained by tapasya. But this tapasya has to be one-pointed. And I am sure that tomorrow in days to come, we will develop the technology and the power of how a devastating nuclear uh, explosion, Brahmastra if you want to put it, as the person who dropped the atom bomb speaks about it, one can activate it on the tip of an arrow. And from what I have heard about a story, it is not documented but I have heard about it and uh, it's there in Mother's, uh, you know, that famous play, The Great Secret, The Secret. So that play does give a hint that Pavitra Da had developed the formula with which on the tip of an arrow or anything, you could actually create a nuclear reaction. And he seems to have told the mother and the mother said, you know it, I know it and that should be the end of it. So, well, uh, at every level, look at it like this. Now, internet, now we use it, but it's a power. How, how did somebody discover this power? By going, taking the trouble of going into space. And that's how all power is discovered. There are ranges of consciousness, ranges of energies. Look at, look at it this way, that there is an energy which has gone into the origin of creation. Billions of stars and galaxies, there is a power and that energy resides within us also because we are also product and creations of that same one energy. Imagine harnessing this one energy. What tremendous, you know, Vishwamutra could create a whole heaven, annex out of that tapasya because he had harnessed it. So the way is of course spiritual but there are other ways also by, you know, the spiritual is the purest way like when Arjuna seeks this power Pashupatastra from uh, you know Lord Shiva 
but uh, these powers can also be procured or acquired by means which are which don't involve the spiritual realm so there are powers from the vital plane which much lesser beings can give us they also are very destructive like you know the astra which uh, karna uses at a point of time that takshaknag that poisoned arrow and you can't do anything about it but that's when shri krishna saves arjuna by pressing his feet and you know the chariot comes down so it was an power wherein all the dark beings of the hostile beings of the dark serpent world were harnessed by karna and this he could you know shoot and kill someone so there are all kinds of powers and that's why these powers when now somebody had asked this question about uh, by the way uh, i forgot that you know karna was asked by indra not by uh, I, of course indra comes and pleads him but kunti literally comes and asks him for kavach kundal now look at it uh, this way that kunti has not asked uh, you know uh, uh, i mean indra asks he is he is not saying karna that don't fight the war and don't kill arjuna all that he has done indra is that let there be a fair play you are a great warrior and arjuna is a great warrior you want to decide who is the better of the two well i leave it to destiny and fate but with this kavach and kundal there is no fair play the whole world would condemn you so he gives away that's because karna wants to prove a point that yes i am the greatest of all that's true that with this armor i cannot really fight because he is invincible at that point of time imagine that way if arjuna had all the celestial weapons pashupatastra and he said okay no war i am going to use it and finish the entire kaurava army there is in mahabharata the incidence of barbaric also he could finish the entire kaurava army with one or two single arrows and shri krishna beheads him he says no that's not how a war is fought this is a war not by this kind of a means it has to be fought there is evil on both sides it has to be the path has to be cleared by that through this battle through this conflict so even barbari could do it two arrows and finished everybody so this is how wars are fought at several planes at several levels it is not just that suddenly they met one day on the field of kurukshetra and from there the war began war began when bhishma renounced the throne and then at several points of time the scene unfolds first behind the scenes when shri krishna goes and tries to avoid the war by telling karna just you come to the pandavas become the king nothing will happen there will be no war nothing but he refuses war began when he goes a shanti dut to the sabha of kauravas so behind the scenes war is depicted in these uh, stories it's not about again good and bad as i said but about dharma and adharma so this is how he comes and asks him in for dana to give away the kavach and kundal indra comes and he uses his own generosity he wants to prove a point that i am very generous karna could have refused he could have said that well i don't want to write my name in the guinness book of record that i am the most generous of all i want to keep my kavach kundal fair deal nobody compelled him to do that at the same time it put them on an equal footing there was an equal um, equal uh, parity between karna and arjuna in the war and even in the last episode he forgot the mantra because he was cursed it's not it's not like uh, you know he was unconscious in a soon and uh, arjuna suddenly shot an arrow and killed him he would never do this kind of ignoble act and nor will ever krishna want him to do that 
So, these powers can be had through tapasya. Any tapasya, and what is tapasya? Tap, any energy. Try to concentrate it, it will become a power. Concentrate the energy of love, it become a power. That's how, you know, purify it. So, concentration and purification equals to tapasya. Any energy, concentrate the energy of thought, instead of becoming discursive thoughts, concentrate it and refine it, go deeper and deeper into it. And there will be a power of thought. Concentrate the energy of will, don't let it, uh, you know, be thrown away in all kinds of pursuits, satisfaction of desires, ambitions, all kinds of things. Just harness the energy, refine it, it will become a power. So, all power is through tapasya. And tapasya means concentration, and purification. The refiner it gets, the more powerful it becomes. So, stone has a power and you can pick it up and throw to somebody. But you can equally awaken in the stone the sense of a Godhead. You can break the stone and sand particles and take out the atom and split it. And that is much more devastating than a stone. Why? Because you have concentrated and refined the basic energy of a stone. So all power principle is the same. And these powers are just round the corner. All that, that is described, you know, already artificial cloud. Cloud seeding is already there. So Varunastra is there. Agniyastra is right round the corner. Plenty of machines that can throw fire. Brahmastra, the nuclear energy. So already we have that power. But we need much more. Not this kind of devastating power. But power which can construct, recreate like Vishukarma who could build in Indraprasth. We need those powers. Destruction by sound waves, surgery by laser. Already it has started. What is laser? Concentrate light and you direct it. It can cut without cutting. What more you want? Ultrasound. It has the power to destroy stones deep inside the kidney. X-rays. They can dissolve tumors. So, they didn't use this term. They use other terms. And well, they could use it for devastating purposes. We should use it for better purposes, beautiful purposes, to build a new world. But most of all, the power of love, which can transform creation. Okay, so that was about power. Any other question? Of course, that's what I was saying. That's the offer which is made to him by Krishna. Of course, you are right. But he refuses. He didn't allow the war to happen. Everybody is happy in their comfort zone. See, divine doesn't intervene unless there is a point where now in the world play he must intervene. Otherwise, he allows the action to unfold. There was no war was necessary. Karna could have continued with Angaraj, would have been happy with Duryodhana and his friendship. It's only when their choices lead them because human beings are allowed free choices. See, the only unfortunate part is God doesn't push and, uh, you know, uh, it's not like automatons. That let there be light and there was light. He allows human beings to make their choices because the path of evolution is through choices. If supposing he just changed us from a uh, you know struggling human being into a perfect tomorrow, suddenly God decided that all of you will be all wise and all of you will be all powerful. We won't even be able to contain it. So the choices, the conflict, the struggles, all that is part of deserving what waits for us at the end of the road. As much for Karna as for Yudhishthira. The end of the road is not the war, but eventually the divinization. So Sri Krishna allows them to make their choices. But a time comes when their choices has led them to an internecine conflict. That's when he tries to avoid. 
he tries to talk to bhishma he tries to talk to the kuru shabha then it talks to karna and what is his offer very beautiful offer he says come and be the king exactly he knew it but why should he come and you know disclose it just to upset a whole uh, you know uh, and will it really make sense uh, will karna really say oh wow now i'll become a king when he refuses it at that point of time krishna very well knew that karna's ambition in life is to defeat arjuna he gives him his full play all of us are given our full play Imagine if Karna was offered this before the war, much before the war, that you know, basically you are one of the Pandus, come, be that uh, king. What would have happened to his ambition? Poor fellow would have, you know, all his life felt uh, so uh, suppressed and so horrible. So he gives him the chance. No, but Krishna did advise him. But as regard identity, that's the. another aspect of the story of karna karna did prove a point that regardless of your birth your true identity is embedded in your soul that's the part where karna rises to glory that even if i am born a radhe a son of a charioteer i am a kshatriya by my nature and temperament that is the true identity identity is not being born to a that way all the pandavas none of them had the blood of pandu if you want to put it like this so karna was also like that and yet karna did prove that i am a kshatriya and everybody accepted him i mean leaving aside that rangmanch after that when he is made the king of angaraj he becomes angaraj everybody accepts he is a king and he is a kshatriya nobody i mean kshatriya is not the point but he is a king he is a man of great prowess what about uh, krishna he is a yaduvanshi and he was called as gwala 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 that's okay i mean that was one part but shri krishna is an upholder of dharma he doesn't take it so much to heart and say you know i have all my life been uh, haunted with this idea that i am a gwala basically life gives this challenge it gave its challenge to karna i agree that it's not a fair deal it's not about always life right from childhood getting a fair deal but what you make of what life gives you is what makes a man neither of pandavas never had a fair deal they didn't have a fair deal right not only from birth but throughout never a fair deal and yet pandavas made their choices krishna never had a fair deal who had a fair deal even bhishma didn't have a fair deal Sirabindu didn't have a fair deal. So if you look at life that way, it doesn't give fair deal. Agreed. Now that's a question which destiny knows. Of course, we can answer that, but that's a different forum altogether. Destiny doesn't give what we think is a fair deal. But the beauty, huh? No, it it happened to show, as you rightly said, that wherever you know there are actual studies that when in a nation or a group life, women are. treated with indignity and disrespect that civilization collapses so now mahabharata is about giving a lesson whether mankind takes it or not the point was made but mankind taking it this lesson or not is up to us so there are people today who have taken the lesson it's not that all human beings do that there are people who have taken the lesson and look at the lesson is so evident today look at the world 100 years back i agree that women are still relegated in the as the you know maybe we don't uh, call them in the sabha and disrobe them but yes we have a similar attitude towards women as pleasure objects there are even religions which say that women and animals are created just for pleasure it's definitely horrible and yet there is today despite everything thanks to the work of shri krishna and now shurbindo that women at least can claim an equal stature they can become presidents prime minister 
queens it was never the case during that time so subsequently in fact india has shown the way other countries much later of course uk we have the lineage of queens some places but queens didn't have right women didn't have right to vote 100 years back but today definitely world if you want to compare it definitely at least the women have a much greater parity in terms of outwardly at least in the eyes of the law they are equal there are human beings so do understand that they are not just pleasure objects you can be friends they have their own right to live a life of dignity but yes the ravanas and the uh, you know Uh, <laughs> Kansas and Duryodhana still continue to exist. They, for them, something is being done—the yoga of transformation—or they will vanish down the line. They can't continue because nature will not allow this to happen. So yes, I agree. The lot more needs to be done. That's why we have to read the Mahabharata uh, to understand that what really is the dignity of a woman. Kunti is not abandoned as. kulta and all that you know even though it is known that she has begotten child not through pandu but other means they're not uh, by the pandavas and any of these uh, noble people they're not uh, treated like that but on the other hand you have kans uh, on the other hand you have duryodhana so that type must go completely in agreement let us be the uh, you know pioneers in this whole thing okay there's a wonderful question so what is the will behind creation let's go to the original will so the will behind creation is that every unit of that great unity seemingly separate unit must grow into delight power wisdom of the one divine that's the will but as this will operates through layers after layers after layers it gets deflected and distorted like i gave this example other time of the original let's say the prime minister passes a will as it comes down to the last rung there is give and take of money involved and the whole thing is distorted the order is misinterpreted all that happens at a you know as it comes down so same way the divine will operates in the world and it but it operates by slowly preparing every unit to reach that point where we can receive and become one with the divine not only fundamentally within us but in that entire uh you know our instrumentation our nature so what is that will just like ignorantly parents want their child to become like them you know or go beyond them so let's put it like that the will and creation what that will is that every unit of creation should become divine which is something wonderful that perfect perfection we should embody but we are not ready so it's a, we are not ready as embodied beings we are ready deep inside one can discover so how to uh discover that will first all these little deflected wills the way it takes form in our consciousness we have to gather it back otherwise what has will become i want this will has become want want has become desired so that original will is lost and yet the play is allowed that way because when we desire and want we discover that it's not what we really wanted so after a time at some stage mankind says let me first understand what i truly want so that one begins to discover at some point of time that whatever i am seeking outside i carry its seed within that's when our human will which is spread out and downward turns inward and upward so it means engaging in yoga turning the will inward and upward gathering it the tapasya concentrating the will not letting this energy go into 100 directions but in one direction 
and that focus is let me know the original will doesn't matter whether we call it divine or will with a capital w that's a perfectly valid term or the source the origin or whatever and then if this will gets concentrated and persists in this endeavor well there the paths the means the ways are created and one day we become one with that will now what about the avatar avatar is a now this is the human journey which evolves towards that and that's why surrender nishkam karma of the gita remember and offer is all means through which we arrive at unity with that will with a capital w but avatar embodies that will it is the divine will coming in the forefront so it is trying to uh, help us bypass all this journey normally we have to undertake this journey through all the layers there is a complex play of forces through which the entire one will has been deflected and deformed so what does the avatar do he says now the will is so much deformed and deflected that if it is not restored what is called as abhyutthanam dharmasya the dharma the will original will then there will be collapse of the civilization so the avatar comes in the forefront embodying that will so what is the difference now normally we have to turn within to discover like the you know isha upanishad gives that oh will remember oh will what was done remember but when the avatar comes he says turn to me man mana bhav mad bhakta and through me you come to a union with that will because there is a tangible something in front of us all avatars say that whether it be christ shri krishna buddha Budd- buddham sharanam gachami and now mother and shurbindo that look i am telling you an easier way so the divine himself comes in the forefront of the human quest and says okay you find it very difficult to go inside and discover the one will okay fine give your will to me and i'll uh, you know inform it fill it with the original divine inflator so these are the two paths to do it one is personal tapasya where we go deep inside and that path is a long path fraught with its own difficulties and dangers and the other is by surrendering to the avatar who represents the divine will upon earth at a given point of time so these are the two paths to upgrade our will and make it one with the divine will and that's what we all should be uh, really interested in no no he did a dharma that's what i was saying that you know it's not that yudhishthir was a paragon of virtues it was a gross adharma that he did and he suffered because of that okay so that's one thing that despite doing the adharma see human life you will do make mistakes and you will make errors so that's understood as somebody has said to err is human to forgive divine errors everybody made in the mahabharata field or in life everywhere but the difference is what you make of that error so there is a term very beautiful term used in indian thought it's about paschataap you know what is paschataap after you have committed a mistake you do the tapasya taap so yudhishthir makes a mistake and that's why one of the first things that is hovering in his mind is why draupadi has to suffer because of me why my brothers have to suffer because of me and that's how we have the birth of the story of savitri in the mahabharata where he goes to rishi markande he is not interested why i have been given a raw deal his dharma bounces back and he suffers because he because of him uh, they have to suffer and he asks that has there ever been anyone who has suffered like draupadi despite being as virtuous as she he doesn't regard her as you know bad doesn't say oh they have disrobed you now no no i don't want you he doesn't do that he feels so much uh, he is filled with remorse and uh, repentance and at that point of time the story of savitri comes that and the story reveals savitri in the context of the story of draupadi that regardless of what fate may deal with you 
still mankind has the strength to bounce back and overturn the decree of fate. So what do Yudhishthir and the Pandavas do during those 13 years? All of them in their own way engage in tapasya. So if you really look at Yudhishthir's life, he faces all this with courage, patience, forbearance. Imagine Duryodhana or Karna for that matter, losing to this kind of an unfair game of dice. You really believe they would have gone to the forest? <laughs> they would have said this game is unfair. In childhood they used to do na bhandus and picked up arms and said, no, no, you meet us like a Kshatriya. But they don't do it. So that's why that blot on Yudhishthir's character, he washes away. The only blot that remains in his life subsequently is Ashwatthama Hatohata. Even though he speaks the full truth, but the intent, so there is the intent aspect. Look to what extent he carries the ideal of truth. Intent. And because his intention still till the end was that, no, no, I shouldn't be doing it. He was in that conflict. So it is said the day Yudhishthir said that his, uh, his, the chariot touched ground. Otherwise, it used to be a little above because of his truthfulness. So still, why does he go in body to heaven? Leave aside the symbolics of the story, but it's a very beautiful story. Goodyear brought it out. Now, there is a last test that all this is fine, you have done. Like, you know, you have done all kinds of good and bad deeds. But there is always for everyone a crucial choice. And that is a choice which Yudhishthir makes when he is offered, you come to kingdom of heaven, we have come to take you. But you know, this dog whom you have faithfully nurtured, you can't take him along with you. And that time Yudhishthir makes a choice that I sacrifice entering into heaven, but I don't sacrifice, this dog has dependent on me. How can I just leave this dog behind for the sake of entry into heaven? And that's when the dog himself is dharma. So we are always given, it's not like once we have done a mistake for life, we are branded. Divine doesn't work like that. There is always a scope of completely effacing the past by one glorious act. And that choice is not given to the other Pandavas because they are full of all kinds of things. But only to Yudhishthir because his life is largely unblemished. But there is a moment when he has to still make a choice. And that choice is made when he chooses the faithfulness of a dog over entry into heaven. And it not only ends there, even when he enters the heaven, he is, you know, because of this little mistake as the story goes, because he told half a lie with half an intent. Not even half a lie, but with a, you know, intent. So he is told that you have to go f to hell for a few seconds. And Yudhishthir goes there and sees his own cousins and everybody suffering. And they all tell him, please stay here, please stay here. Your presence itself is soothing us. And Yudhishthir again says, I refuse heaven. Because if my presence can make these people comfortable, let me be with them. And at that moment, the whole scene changes. And he's shown that no, everybody is in heaven, including Duryodhana and others. Because what is heaven? There is in all of us a best part. So Bhima says, why is Duryodhana in heaven? He says, it is that part in him which was veer. He was not dhurt like Shakuni. He was Veer, whatever it be. And because of his Veerta, he was there in heaven. Why is Karna in heaven? He had that one quality because of which he is in heaven. He was outrightly generous to a default. So everybody, what is, uh, what, there is a part in us which is left behind. But ultimately what goes to the higher worlds is that which is truly high and noble. And everyone in us has that. That's how the story ends. That at the end, everybody 
uh, you know, like that uh, story Alice in Wonderland. All win the prizes, all have <laughs> run the race and all have won the prizes, all have come first. So at the end of the story, everybody actually reaches heaven because they all had something beautiful and good in it. On earthly scene, they fight, there is combat, there is struggle, there is wrestle, there is dharma, adharma. But in the end, every human being, this is the ultimate truth that Indian civilization has come to teach. All of us carry within us something which is noble and divine. It may be expressed for a moment in our life, but that is unblemished, untarnished, and it is that which will always carry the journey forward. So the goodness of Duryodhana survives in spite of a hundred evils he may do. So that's the lesson of that story towards the end. Thank you, thank you. Okay, bye-bye.